about 400 years before the birth of our Savior, the famous philosopher Plato wrote in his book, The Republic, that it should be banned, outlawed, punishable, to write any stories that have to do with gods taking human form. That this was beneath the dignity of the gods and we ought not do it. And when the Savior was born, the angels sang glory to God in the highest. What's so glorying about God becoming man? Why did Plato hate that idea so much and yet we revel in it? Even this word glory has this connotation of manifestation of power. To show forth one's greatness. In fact, the, the reading about the, the shepherds, which is actually the, the mass at dawn, the, the morning mass. The, 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 the reading of the, the shepherds, we hear the glory to God in the highest from the angels. But right before that, it says, the angels showed up and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the, and the shepherds were struck they were struck with fear. Because that's what happens every time the glory of the Lord shows up. People are struck with fear. They're falling on their faces. I think the Old Test, think of the Old Testament in Mount Sinai. God shows up in glory. There's always fire, smoke, lightning, thunder, and people are always falling on their faces. They're always telling Moses, you go talk to God. We're going to stay here where it's safe. God shows up in his glory and we're petrified. The saying in the Old Testament, we hear it again and again, is nobody can see God and live. So yeah, God's, God's glory strikes us. Even the apostles, the three apostles went up the mountain, Mount Tabor with Jesus and he just peels back the veil just a little bit. His glory shines forth in his transfiguration. They fall on their faces. They fall on their faces in the, in the face of the glory of God, the power of God manifested. And today we celebrate a cute little cuddly baby in a manger. You can kind of see where Plato was coming from. Like if we're supposed to glory in the power of the, the gods, well, what's so impressive about that? Well, I think there's something that Plato didn't know. One of the, one of the things that Plato didn't know is what God was actually up to back in the Old Testament. His, his project was, was different. What the people needed at that time was to see his power, to see how immense he was. Their problem was always worshiping false gods. So he says, oh yeah, you know, those, those gods, yeah, I, I smite them. This is the whole deliverance from Egypt. Every single one of those plagues, oh yeah, there was another god that the true god was smoting. leads him out of the desert. He's testing him. Do you believe that I have power? 
The winds and the waves and the elements have no strength against me. It took them a long, long time to get that. Years of exile, they finally come back to like, okay, there's only one God. We get it. And God's like, good. You're ready for part two. Because it's easy to fall down on our faces when we're confronted with magnificence and power. But it's a totally different thing to fall on our faces when we're confronted with meekness, with littleness, with tenderness. Do we still believe that that is the God of the universe, the God of power and might, the Lord of hosts? It's like God was saying, okay, you've seen my greatness. I want to show you how close I want to come to you. And I can't do that unless I take this human form, this littleness. But even in that, God shows his glory because he shows us the infinite goodness of his humility. He's so powerful that he's not afraid to show weakness. That's something Plato didn't get, something that most of us don't get. If I'm really powerful, I can be little. And I'm not threatened by that. Jesus comes in weakness and vulnerability. He says, yeah, I'm okay with that. Can we still fall on our faces before a tiny, cuddly little baby or before a tortured and the man on a cross. This is what we're being invited into. Yeah, Mount, Mount, Mount Sinai, it's easy to fall on our faces. But now we have a choice to make. Now we have to answer the question, what child is this? I was in Walgreens the other day and there's a Life magazine that had a picture of Jesus on and the title was, Who Do You Say That I Am? And of course, that's the, that's the question that Jesus asks his apostles when they're up at Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? And it's the question that every single one of us has to answer. Who do you say that this tiny little cuddly baby is? Who do you say that this, this crucified man is? I think for a long time, the in vogue answer was, well, yeah, Jesus, he's a good, he's a good teacher. He's got wise things to say. I like some of the things he says, uh, you know, he's a good, good, good teacher. Which, of course, is a ridiculous response because if there's anything that he, he is, it's not a good teacher. Because if he's just a good teacher, he's actually a really bad teacher because he said that he was God. He went around forgiving sins. He said, yeah, me and, me and, the, me and, the God, me and God, we're one. So, well, that's, I, I don't care what else you have to say, you're crazy. Well, unless he's not, but. I think actually the more en vogue answer now, who is Jesus to you, is, oh, he's my friend. He's my, he's my buddy. Me and Jesus, we're pals. And sometimes when people say that, I'm like, oh, I would not want to be your friend if that's the way you treat your friends. 
And don't get me wrong, Jesus wants friendship. At the Last Supper, he said to, he said to his apostles, he says, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. And I call you friends because I've told you everything from my father. Ah, oh, so this is good. This is actually really important because our friendship is contingent upon something. It's contingent upon receiving what he's told us. But so many of those people who say he's my friend don't really listen to what he's said. Those things that have been handed down to us in sacred scripture and through the tradition of the church. And so this this friendship that we have with Jesus is kind of like, you know, the friendship that you have with your next door neighbor that you you like wave to them when you're both outside shoveling the driveway. Maybe if you're really good friends, you might just call them up to ask if you can borrow a power tool or something. And if you're really intimate, you might even ask him to check your mail while you're gone out of town. But... Only if you're really close. But Jesus wants so much more than that. In fact, in the first reading, in last night's reading, it says, it's prophecy from Isaiah, and he says, I want to call you my delight. I want to espouse you to myself. Jesus doesn't just want to be friends with you. He wants to be your lover. That's the language of sacred scripture. Brothers and sisters, we, we fall so short. Most of the world, our, our conception of Jesus is so deficient. If we just think of Jesus as this kind of guy who can be my pal and I can you know, get some favors from every once in a while, this is, this is really pathetic actually. Because Jesus is is a power. That little tiny baby, that man on the cross, all the power of every time we see God's glory show up in the Old Testament or anywhere else in sacred scripture, that's contained in that tiny little cuddly package. But most of us don't tap into that. It's kind of like, it's kind of like medicine, you know, like, I don't know, a strong, a strong Tylenol or something. It's a little tiny pill. It doesn't look very dangerous. This is why we have the child safety lock so our kids don't get into it because it doesn't look dangerous. Fire at least looks dangerous, but a tiny little pill doesn't look very dangerous. But it's really powerful unless you don't take enough of it. I got a really, really bad headache. Oh, you should take some Advil for that. Oh, I did. Oh, yeah? How much did you take? Well, I licked it. I licked the Advil. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not a doctor or anything, but I don't think that's enough. That's, that's kind of how most of the world treats Jesus. Yeah, we just, we just dabble in Jesus. Oh yeah, I know Jesus and, you know, he's okay. I, I, don't, I don't get a whole lot out of that, so I do, I do other things to kind of find my centering, my source of peace. No, you don't know Jesus. You're licking Advil. Jesus is power. The guy who invented penicillin back in the 20s, he said, you know, the, the thing that we've got to be careful of is if people don't take the right dosage, not only are they not going to get its healing effects, but they're just going to build a resistance to it. 
They become inoculated. They just get enough that your body sends out all these signals to say, oh, we don't want that. I think that's most of the world when it comes to Jesus. Oh, yay, Christmas, a cute little baby, and it's got nothing to do with my life. But I think that there's a, there's a more important question than who do I say that he is. And that question is, who does he say that I am? Who does Jesus say that you are? If I'm honest about it, I'm not even sure I want to know the answer to that question. Who does he say that I am? It's easy to name drop, you know, to say, oh yeah, you know, that, you know so-and-so is my friend. Like, like Scott Hahn, yeah, he's my, he's my friend. I met, him, I met him once at a big conference with 10,000 other people. Oh, yeah? What would Scott Hahn say about you? Oh, well, I think he might recognize me. What does Jesus say about you? I was struck by the opening prayer in uh, last night's four o'clock mass. So this is the, the first prayer that we pray, celebrating Christmas, we're waiting all of Advent, and this is the, the prayer that we get. O God, who gladden us year by year as we await and hope for our redemption, grant that just as we joyfully welcome your only begotten Son as our Redeemer, we may also merit to face him confidently when he comes as our judge. Merry Christmas. It's like, wow, okay, so we're, we're going there. Now, I mean, we shouldn't be terribly surprised by this. We say these words every single Sunday in the creed. I believe that he will come again in glory. There's that word again, in glory, to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come. All, all, all the, 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 the veil is totally torn. He's coming in power and might. He's not coming as a cute, cuddly little baby this time. He's going to come all his glory. Remember what happens when people see his glory. We fall down on our faces and it's at that moment that we don't have any excuses left. We don't get to say, hey, we were, we were buddies, right? We were pals? I, I loaned you a screwdriver once? Like, we don't get to do it. Like, it's at that moment, it's just, we're just face to face with glory. And it's at that moment that that question is going to make all the difference in the world. Who does he say that you are? Who does he say that I am? But even in this, this mystery of the incarnation of the God made flesh that Plato just couldn't, couldn't get is the beginning of the answer to the question. He shows us infinite humility, infinite littleness, Can I surrender my life to him? Can I bring him close to me and be little like him? Can, can I obey those, those ten commandments, the church's teachings, when I don't understand them? Can I, can I allow the power of Jesus to be manifest in my life? 
That's, that's the project. That's the Christian project. And no matter where you are, there's still more. No matter whether you, you haven't even talked to Jesus in a year or you're in the Adoration Chapel 24-7, there's still more. And most of us haven't even tapped into it. G.K. Chesterton said 100 years ago, nobody's ever tried Christianity and found it wanting. They found it hard and left it untried. I might even adapt that and say, you know, most people have barely tried it and found it not that exciting. It's like licking Advil. In a moment, we'll celebrate the Eucharist. And Jesus, once again, will just show the, the, the magnificence of his, his humility. He'll, he'll show his glory in the way that he can become so little that not only does he come as a little tiny baby, but he'll come in the appearance of a tiny little piece of bread that seemingly has no power whatsoever, that anybody could just walk up and just grab the, grab the host and call it a day. But with the eyes of faith, we see what that really is. That it's the light of the world. And the light of the world, brothers and sisters, is not a 60-watt bulb. It's not a little candle. It's brighter than the brightest star in the sky, brighter than the sun. It's all that power. Anybody can come forward and receive I don't recommend that. I don't recommend that if you haven't been living in relationship with Jesus, and not in the relationship that I kind of sort of think is okay, but the relationship that he expects from me. Going to Mass every Sunday, reading the scriptures, trying to conform my life to the church's teachings, going to confession when I don't live up to that. If we're not doing that, I don't recommend coming in contact with the power of the Eucharist. Not today. If there's, if there's a tug on your heart for more, then by all means, investigate that tug. Go through the proper, proper channels. Dive into the scriptures. Come to the rescue project. We're doing the rescue project again in a couple weeks. And the, the comments from the last round were, I never, I never thought of Jesus that way. I learned more in those eight weeks than I did in all of my faith formation classes, all of Catholic school. Don't, don't settle for what you think you know about Jesus. Encounter him anew. At the end of time, Jesus will come in all his glory to judge the living and the dead. It's at that moment that that question, what he thinks about you, will be very important to us. But right now, we have the opportunity to really evaluate who we think that he is and live our life in accordance to that answer.